Good evening, church. Wow, that's loud. Did I blow anyone else away? I got blown away. Well, here we are, another Good Friday. I was reminded, uh, my wife pointed this out to me, it's been two years since our family has been around for a a Christmas weekend, or Easter, wow. Man, I need some sleep. The uh, two years ago, of course, was uh, the pandemic, and no one was really gathering at that point. And then the year after that, we were on a road trip as, our, as a family. So it's good to be back uh, for an Easter weekend with you all. Uh, it's the cross. We're here. We're going to talk about the cross, the cross of Christ, Good Friday. And to do that, we're going to talk about life. And life, the reality of life is it's not easy. Anyone who's lived long enough will tell you this. Anyone have that experience? Raise your hand. Life not easy? No one here coasting through life? Really? If you are, I'd like to talk. Because, uh, yeah. Well, you, you don't need me to tell you this, right? Life, life isn't easy. Whether you're a child and some other kid is mean to you on the playground or won't play with you, or a sibling took away one of your toys. Can you tell what stage of life I am in as a, as a parent? I know this. Or maybe you're in middle school. I'll just stop there. No more explanation needed, right? You're in middle school. Life is hard. Uh, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you. Adults, don't roll your eyes. I was told puppy love is love to puppies. As you get older, problems only get bigger, more complex. You lose your job, your health. Maybe you lose a child or a spouse. Or you lose your marriage. And now add to all of this the events of the last few years, a global pandemic, increased racial and political divisions, soaring gas prices, inflation, and now a horrific evil being committed daily in Ukraine with Russia's ongoing invasion. Now you might be thinking, I go to church to feel good about myself. (laughs) What are we doing here? Why all this reminder of how hard life is? I want to hear this tonight. But I want to tell you this is a good thing. It's a good thing because the message of the Bible is not a a pie-in-the-sky message of optimism that ignores the reality of suffering in this life. Instead, the Bible locks horns with suffering and gives us real hope to those who suffer. The Bible addresses pain and addresses suffering. Then at some point, you hear the gospel, that Jesus died to pay for your sins, to reconcile you to God, and and things are great. Anyone here remember when you first became a Christian, you were like walking on cloud nine for a few days, right? Uh, That was my experience anyway, you know, like, I thought I'd maybe be like Enoch and God would just take me, right? I'm just like there, you know, I'm in the zone. Things are good. Uh, I can't imagine life getting any better. It's good for a while and then life gets hard again. And that leaves some to feel quite disillusioned with their faith. And this is why when I talk to new believers, 
After I express my excitement for what it is that God's done in their heart to bring them from life to death, amen, I like to tell them that their new life in Christ won't make life any easier. In fact, it will probably get harder, but it will be exponentially better. It'll be exponentially better. The reason for this is because before you're a Christian, you had one enemy. You were at enmity with God. And the moment of conversion, you become a child of God, you, you cross over from death to life. After you become a Christian, you gain three new enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all uh, at war. They're enemies of your souls. Now, the Christians being written to in the letter to the Hebrews that we're going to look at tonight, that group of Christians included some very discouraged believers. Some of them were facing intense persecution and were even considering giving up and walking away from their faith in Christ. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you know someone like that. What do you say to someone who's experienced such intense hardship and even persecution in their lives and their faith is just running on fumes? How do you encourage them? How do you encourage them? Well, the solution that the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, the solution that he uses is to point them to the darkest day in human history. The crucifixion of Jesus. This is what he gives them. This is how he encourages them. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Okay? This is what we're going to look at tonight. So to unpack this, grab your Bibles. Get them out. We're going to be in Hebrews 12. We're going to look at this together this evening. If you don't have a Bible, use our pew Bibles. Follow along with me as I read. I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. We're going to read verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the good news it is for people who suffer. Thank you for the good news it is for people who face hardships in this life. That includes every single one of us to one degree or another. So we're thankful that your word addresses these issues. 
that your word addresses the, the dark night of the soul. Father, we thank you for your son that you gave because you love the world so much. And Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to open our eyes that we may see the treasures of, of your word and that they may change our lives and make us more like Jesus this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So how are we to combat suffering as followers of Jesus? Three points tonight. Running. We run. We look. It involves looking. And then the last thing, it involves rejoicing. Okay? Now these three things, here's how they're tied together. Uh, Running. It's what we do. Looking. It's how we do it. And rejoicing is why we do it. Okay? So that's the connection between those three points. Running, it's, it's what we do. Looking, it's how we do it. And rejoicing is why we do it. Got it? All right, so let's start with running. This is what we do. Okay? When we're, when we're suffering and we're, we're struggling, this is what we do. Look at verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As Christians, we're in a race. But don't, don't, be, don't make any mistake about this. Don't be confused about this. This is not a leisurely Saturday morning 5K. That's not the Christian race. The word race here is actually used throughout the entire New Testament as a synonym for conflict. For conflict, for struggle, It's a fight. It's a race, but it's a fight. It's a description of the life of a normal Christian. Look at Paul's words to Timothy. He uses the same word here. He says to Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Christian life is a fight. It's a fight. But it's a good fight. I'll talk more about this later, but for now, know that it's a good fight. Now, notice the quality with which you are to run. You you must run with what? Endurance. Run with endurance. Meaning patience. You run with patience. Elsewhere, this Greek word is translated as steadfastness, which carries a meaning of uh, a, a, an unwavering quality about our faith as we, as we fight to patiently endure suffering. We keep going with endurance, with patience, with unwavering commitment to obeying Jesus. That's enduring. In 2 Peter 1, Peter lists steadfastness as a quality that you should add to your faith. And here's the reason he gives for why. Verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, For if these qualities, steadfastness being one of them, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness is a quality that helps you to run well. Endurance, patience, unwavering steadfastness. 
It helps you to be effective. Text highlights two more ways for you to run effectively. One is by laying aside every weight and sin. There's really two things going on here. First, let's talk about sin because sin clings. It clings so closely. It it restricts our running. It's counterproductive to the fight our sin is. It clings to us and it pulls us down. Have you ever jumped into a pool or a lake with all your clothes on? And you're maybe surprised, maybe the first time you did it, by how much it just pulls you down. Or you ever do that with jeans on? That's, that's pretty tough. Uh, when I was in college, I was a lifeguard at the pool on campus and we had to go through all this training. And one of the things we had to do was go in the water with all our clothes on and just to get that sensation of how it just pulls you down. This is a dangerous game that some play with their sin. It's a way of kind of managing your sin, not killing it. You kind of keep it around. It's like a comfortable pair of jeans until you get thrown in the deep end and it starts pulling you down. It's like a pet. We like it. The whole time it's there, it's pulling us down. It's counterproductive to running with endurance. Okay? So we need to take our sin seriously. We need to lay it aside. We need to lay it aside. The other thing we're told to lay aside here is weight. And this is really a different thing from sin. These can be morally neutral things. They become distractions. Something that becomes maybe more important than it should be. And it crowds out the running of your race. It's counterproductive to the fight. It could be anything from sports or hobbies to forms of other kind of entertainment. All, all these things are fine in moderation, but if left unchecked, they become weights that keep us from running with endurance. And this means that living the Christian life is not just about steering clear of things that are morally wrong. The Christian life is not just about asking yourself if this is right or wrong for me to do. It's also about asking yourself whether or not something will help you follow Jesus better or not. Will this help me run my race better or not? Will this help me fight better or not? It's not just about whether or not something is right or wrong, but whether or not something is helpful for me or whether it's going to hold me back. Last thing under this point, at the end of verse 1, it says that our race is set before us, meaning we don't get to choose our race, our trials, our sufferings. Your race is laid before you. This is a good comfort. This is a great comfort because we know that God will not bring anything into our lives or allow any trial that is not ultimately for our good and for God's glory. If we're followers of Christ, nothing that he allows into our life or or lays before us or sets before us, there's nothing that he's going to put there that won't be used for your good and for his glory. This is how James puts it in James 1. Count it all joy, 
my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's that word again, steadfastness. We should be thankful for our trials. That sounds kind of strange. I don't know anyone who's really thankful for their trials. But because we should be, because they are opportunities to grow in greater endurance and in steadfastness. It's, it's like training and it's like, it's like exercise. You don't just get up from the couch one day and brush off the potato chip crumbs and decide to run a marathon. Anyone ever do that? What, really? Wow, it's impressive. You don't do that though. You train first. You've got to build up endurance. You've got, to, you've got to challenge yourself. You've got to get stronger by overcoming smaller challenges. And that causes your body to grow physically and grow in endurance. And this is how suffering and trials work in the life of a Christian. They challenge your faith. And each time you overcome them, you get a little stronger and your endurance grows more and more. So when you suffer, count it all joy, as James says, and ask yourself, how is God intending this for my good and for his glory? And look for it. So let's review this point. You combat suffering as a Christian by running, meaning that you patiently endure suffering, not wavering from your obedience to Christ, laying aside every weight and sin, And knowing that God sets every trial before you to make your faith stronger. This all sounds great. This all sounds great, but how are we to do this? How are we to do this? This is the next point, how, looking. We do this by looking. Look at verse 2. Running in this way is only possible by looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. First, what do we see when we look to Jesus? We see that he endured the cross. So just as you are called to endure we, we are to see that Jesus first endured the cross. Verse 3 adds that he endured hostility from sinners. We're told to consider this. To look to Jesus who first endured. Why? Verse 3 tells us, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We look to the cross. We look to him who endured first so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the role of the cross plays. In other words, this is how you were to run, by looking to Jesus, by considering Jesus, and how he ran his race all the way to the cross. Not wavering and with patient endurance. And here's how this works. You have a hard day. You encounter some suffering. Maybe you're persecuted. You're tempted to maybe ditch your faith. 
The remedy, consider Jesus. The remedy, look to Jesus, who was whipped, who was spat on, who was nailed to a cross. Consider what he endured and run your race. The race set before you with endurance. Consider what he suffered and run. Next, notice his attitude. He didn't do it begrudgingly or unwillingly. He did it with joy. He did it with joy. And he despised the shame of the cross. Let's take these two ideas one at a time. Joy and despising. What does it mean that he despised the shame? It means that in comparison to the joy that it would bring him, he thought so little of the shame. He thought so little of it. It was, a, it was of no consequence. He despised it. Now let's think about the joy. Notice that just as our race is set before us, so too the joy, joy was set before Jesus. When Jesus looked to the cross, he, he looked through it. He looked through the cross to what it would accomplish and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this means that the suffering of the cross was, was part of the path that led to the throne. Get this, the cross was not an end in itself. If this is where the Christian gospel stopped, it would be no gospel at all because people died on crosses all the time in the Roman world. Big deal. The Christian gospel is no gospel at all if it stops at the cross. It's what Jesus accomplished on the cross that was a big deal. It's the thing that brought him such great joy that he despised the shame of the cross. What is this joy? What is this that brings him such great joy? The joy of Jesus was to bring salvation to those that he loved. That his broken body and his shed blood would cover and pay for the sin of the world. And this would result, this would result in him receiving all glory, honor, and praise. This is, this is the joy. This is the joy. Because he, his, the, the end for Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's receiving all glory and all honor and all praise. This is the joy of Jesus, the salvation of sinners, but doesn't stop there either. It's not just the salvation of sinners. It's, it's the joy of receiving all the glory, honor, and praise for his work. Now, I want to be careful. I, so we sang a song tonight, Above All, and there's these words in there that say, you, you took the fall and you thought of me Above all, I'd like to maybe clarify that a little bit. To be more specific, Jesus thought of the glory that he would receive. The praise from the lips of those he saved. This is what he thought of above all. It's not just you, right? It's not just you. It's the praise that he would receive from you. 
Now think about this, ready? If God really is the ultimate good and beauty in the entire universe, it's right for him to pursue the praise of his people above all. Otherwise, he's not the the ultimate good. Does that make sense? He's not the ultimate good if he's not pursuing his own glory. And, And that seems strange to us today because... You know, anyone who does that on, on earth is egotistical or self-centered, right? But it's right, this sounds strange, it's right for God to pursue his own glory when it isn't right for any one of us to do that because he's God. It wouldn't be right if he wasn't God. God's pursuit, John Piper says this, God's pursuit of praise from us and our pursuit of, of joy, of pleasure in him, it's the same pursuit. When we, when we find that joy of being in Christ and we're giving him praise, that's what he loves. He loves the praise of his people and he loves us. He loves us enough to give us himself and for us to give him that glory. Okay, this brings me to the last point, rejoicing. I've already kind of bled into it a little bit. But I had to talk about that song. I just had to do it. Uh, The joy of Jesus. It's our joy too. It's our joy too. While looking to Jesus' example is how we run, the joy of Jesus is why we run. What awaits the Christian at the finish line? What is it? What's at the end of our race? What's on the other side? Well, it's two things. First, What was Jesus' joy? It was accomplishing salvation for those he loved. So our joy is related. It's receiving. So Jesus' joy was accomplishing salvation for us. Our joy is receiving that same salvation, the completion of it, right? So they're, they're intertwined with one another. Our joy is to receive the completion of our salvation from Jesus. And we know that the completion of our salvation is a sure thing. One, because it doesn't depend on us. We don't have to wonder if it will happen. This is good news. How do we know this? Look back at the beginning of verse 2. Jesus is the founder and perfecter or the finisher of our faith. And so if our faith begins and is completed by Jesus, we are not left to wonder. We're not left to to wishful thinking of kind of this Disney hope. Our hope is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This is how Paul puts it to the Philippian church, chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He saves all those who are given to him. No one is snatched from his hand. We're going to get there in our John series. But this means that Jesus is more than just an example to imitate. He's the motor that will get us across the finish line of our race. He's the motor that gets us there. But there's more to our joy than this. Remember, Jesus' joy was to accomplish salvation and to be seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven, 
where he'll receive all glory, honor, and praise. This is what we see in Revelation 7. Let me just read some of this for you and and just be in awe as you hear this, and as you get a a glimpse of, of the end goal here. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I feel like we just go home now. That's, wow, that's the end goal, rejoicing. And there's just a glimpse of it. So if Jesus' greatest joy is to receive all glory, honor, and praise, our greatest joy is to give it. Our greatest joy is to give it. And in this way, his joy is our joy. And this is what we see in Revelation 7. And this is why we run. This is why we run, church, because that's what awaits us. That's what awaits us. This is why we run. This is the joy that will be ours. How do we overcome hardships in this life? We run with endurance, the race set before us. We look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame so that we may worship Jesus, rejoicing around the throne of heaven. This is what Jesus accomplished through the cross. And this is what awaits us on the other side of all the trials, all the sufferings that we may endure in this life. On the other side of just like Jesus looked through the cross to the joy that was set before him, we can look through our trials, we can look through our sufferings, we can look through it to the joy that's set before us on the other side of eternity, or in eternity. There's no other side of eternity. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, this brings us to communion. Let's consider. Let's look to Jesus, and let's consider him who endured such hostility from sinful man that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's consider that. I don't know where you guys are necessarily or what you're struggling with or what you're going through or what what um, what ways you may have stumbled or fallen even today or this week but this is our chance to come and to remember to look to consider so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted I'm going to give you just a moment we're, we're told that it's good to uh, to examine ourselves become where do you need to be encouraged where do you need to confess where do you need to repent and to look to Jesus 
be overwhelmed with gratitude, knowing that he first endured. You're enduring now, but he endured first. He went to the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And that's where we're on our way to. So consider now, examine your hearts and we'll come to the table. Lord Jesus, we come to this table as those who struggle, who stumble, who suffer. We come as those who've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. We've been redeemed. We've been made new. We've, we've crossed over from death to life by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. So we're here to remember. We're here to look to Jesus. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, his broken body and his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins to bring us the greatest joy imaginable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Jesus, we thank you that you were bruised, that you were crushed, that your body was broken for our iniquities. The riches of grace for the depths of our sin to forgive us, to make us whole. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And then Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the cup the new covenant of my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink. Lord Jesus, we're thankful. We're a thankful people. 
we're thankful and we're joyful because your blood alone washes away every stain of sin in our lives and enables us to stand before your throne spotless, blameless. When you see us, you see Jesus. You see Jesus' perfect record of obedience given to us as our own. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. We pray these things in your name. Amen.